We're winding down a series through the book of 1 Peter that we've been in since September. Um, And we're going to be taking a look at chapter 5 this week, finishing off the book next week, going back to chapter 4. But in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 5 down through verse 11 is where we're going to read together this morning. If you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in uh, verse 5, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter together, we've noticed quite a few characteristics of what, it, of what a sojourning life looks like here in this world. We've said that sojourners are people who live in this world, but they don't belong to this world. They're individuals who live as citizens of God's kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. So their values and their customs and their beliefs and their practices are shaped by the values, customs, beliefs, and practices of their heavenly homeland as opposed to where they where their address is, where their home is in this world, the, the brick and mortar and the, the boards that they live underneath. And so our, our lives are shaped by a different culture, a different place, um, as different people. And so we've seen some of these characteristics that we've moved through the book of First Peter, but the one that I want to draw to your attention to this morning is this one, is that sojourners, those who live as citizens of God's kingdom among these earthly kingdoms, are individuals whose eyes and ears and minds and hearts have been awakened to ultimate reality, to ultimate reality. In other words, there are individuals who know that what they can see is not all that there is. They, they, they know that there's something going on behind the curtain. In other words, when you draw the curtain back, there's something going on behind the scenes that you may not be able to sense with your five senses. You may not be able to measure with empirical data and scientifically test it. But there's something going on behind the curtain of human history. And what's going on behind the curtain of human history is that there is a a, a conflict that's taking place between the God of all creation who sovereignly rules and reigns over all that he's created and those who have rebelled against him and are pushing back against his authority and seeking to take as many men and women with him as he possibly can. And in the Bible, the Bible calls the enemy of God, the one who stands in opposition to God, the one who has exalted himself against and above God, calls him the devil calls him Satan. And in this text this morning, one of the things that stands off the page for us is this, is the fact that you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, if you're one who's thrown their lives and their legacies at the feet of God and said, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours, that he's not just the adversary or the enemy of God, but he's also your adversary. He's also your enemy. In fact, in the text, we see that Peter uses those words in verse 8 where he says, your personal adversary, the devil. 
is not just referred to the adversary, but to your adversary. In other words, the devil's not just the enemy of God, but the enemy of God's people. And one of the things this means for you and I is that we are not only a problem for the devil because we are living in submission to God, we're living in obedience to God, we're coming underneath God's mighty hand, but what it means is that for you and I, we're not just a problem for the devil, but we're his prey. We're his prey. And he's seeking to prey on as many of us as possible. And the reason I skip forward in the text this week to chapter 5 is because I know that many of you students in the room and even some of you adults are coming off of a week where you were, man, literally you were on a mountain, okay? And spiritually you were on a mountain. But oftentimes whenever you come down out of those occasions and experiences, the devil lies in wait to ambush you and to try and claim ground in your life and advance on you. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at this text from that perspective. How do we resist the advances of our adversary? Because he is your adversary. He is my adversary. He stands opposed to all that God is doing, all that God has done, and all that God will one day do in and through our lives. It means that we're not just a problem, we're his prey. See, every, every animal on the face of the earth, this, this year in second grade, my son, um, who's eight, about to be nine, they did projects, group-based learning projects in their classroom where they did f- uh, 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 kind of looked at different climates around the globe and they looked at the different uh, habitats and the animals that compose those habitats and the food chains that existed in those habitats. And so everything from the microscopic or- organisms up to the largest mammals that exist in those habitats, and they did a food chain for those and presented it to their class and all the parents, you know, as we walked around from group to group but there's a food chain that exists in every habitat and every uh, every mammal on the face of the earth has a natural predator including you and I listen one 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 day during the week I think it was on Wednesday afternoon uh, Kevin and I decided we were going to take a group of folks hiking and so we were hiking up the mountain and uh, as we were kind of traversing some of the trails there we began to look off in the distance and saw a, a, a higher peak than what we had been to before and so as we're moving our way up the trail, we, we can't find a trail that actually cuts off uh, and heads up that, to that peak. And so as we're walking along, we go into a little a beautiful area with all these aspen trees and big boulders. And we come back out and we walk and we're like, we've got to get to the top. I don't know why. Um, both of us are like, you know, knocking on 40 right now. Um, he's knocking a little harder than I am. Um, but both of us are knocking on 40 right now. Um, and we're like, for some reason, like there was this infusion of energy, like we were in our late 20s again. And so we're like, Man, we're, we're going to make it. We're going to get up there. We don't see a trail, although there's a trail 150 yards away from where we just started climbing up the rocks and through the bushes on the mountain. So we're climbing up. We, 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 that day, we don't make it all the way to the top, but we make it to this big rock face. And we climb up the top of the rock face, take some pictures, capture the view a little bit, and then we come back down around the backside of that. And as we're coming down, we notice this big cleft in the rock or this big cave there and we're both kind of look at each other like "Mm, that looks awfully a lot like maybe a bear den and so we're walking down the mountain and he's I I, I told him I take a picture of you in front of it he's like no that's all right Um, and so we're walking down the mountain we look at this cave and we both kind of have this realization at the same moment we're like if there's a hungry bear there's a hungry bear in that cave I sure hope Paul and Kevin, uh, uh, Paul and Ryan are up to the task because we, like as, as valiant of an effort we'll put up against this bear, right? I have a feeling that neither of us are going to walk away from that fight and the bear's going to win two zip. 
right? Fortunately, there was no bear in the cave, and we actually, I actually did poke my head in there and look around a little bit um, before we made our way down the mountain. But listen, if, if we came encounter with a hungry bear in, up on the mountain, listen, I, I have no shot at making it out of that without something more powerful than my two hands. And the same is true for you and I, that we have a predator who is seeking to prey upon us. Seeking to prey upon us. In fact, the text tells us actually that he, that he prowls like a roaring lion. Now, when most of us, when we read about the devil, we have one of two responses. Either we attribute nothing to him or we attribute everything to him. Either we attribute all the bad things in our life that have happened to us to him or we attribute nothing that has happened to us to him. But both of those ends of the spectrum are the wrong perspective with which to operate in respect to the devil, in respect to the adversary. There are many people who, on the one end of the spectrum, like, attribute everything to him. And they say, you know what, the devil's behind every rock and he's underneath every log. And the devil is in every flat tire and the devil's in every failed relationship. The devil's behind every broken bone and the devil's behind every broken heart. They attribute everything to the devil. But one of the things that happens for those on that end of the spectrum is they have a tendency not to own their own sinfulness, right? They have kind of that devil made me do it type of syndrome where everything gets offloaded and they have no personal responsibility for their actions. On the other end of the spectrum, you got folks who attribute nothing to him. In other words, they're not awakened to the fact that there's something behind the curtain that all you can see is not all that there is. So they attribute nothing to the devil. And as a result, they wind up being unsuspecting prey because whenever you're not aware and watchful, as the text says, then he's able to, uh, to, to pounce on you and prey on you. See, those of us who attribute nothing to him, we think that all the problems, whether it be societal problems or personal problems in our life, societal evil or personal evil, can be attributed to things like um, electing the right officials or enacting the right economic policies or having the right counseling or the right medication. And so we attribute nothing to the spiritual forces that exist outside of what we can see, and we attribute everything, everything only to the things that we can see. When the Bible the Bible, the Bible's not, the Bible doesn't present it that way. It says, yes, you are, you are responsible for your own sin. You're responsible. There's a responsibility that you have to own your flesh and own your sinfulness. But at the same time, there is something going on behind the curtain. And almost often, listen, students, most often the devil, the adversary, will gain ground and advance in your life, but he will only gain the ground that you give him. He will only gain the ground that you give him. And he will will leverage your sin in order to gain a foothold in your life and prey upon you like a roaring lion. Now listen, whenever we talk about the devil being a roaring lion, that's maybe a new image for some of us because most of us, when we think about the devil, we think about a snake or a serpent, right? Like back in Genesis chapter 3 where he shows up as a serpent, crafty and sneaky, but the image of a roaring lion is a little bit different than, uh, than a serpent, isn't it? Most of the time when we think of the devil, we think of how crafty he is or how he accuses. That's what his name means in the Greek text. He's an accuser of God's people. Or we think of how he deceives like he did with our first parents in the garden. Or we think about how he tempts us like he did with our Lord in the wilderness. We think about how he baits the hook of death with the promise of life in order to get us like a bass with a crawl worm down on the bottom being hopped along just to kind of, right, and gobble it down. 
That is one of his strategies. He baits the hook of death with the promise of life, thinking that if I do, if I have autonomy, if I have freedom, if I can do what I want, where I want, with whom I want, how I want, as often as I want, then life will be fulfilling. He baits the hook of death with the promise of life, but that's not what he's talking about here in this text. Peter says the devil doesn't compare him to a snake who sneaks and slithers, who's crafty and tempts and deceives, but rather he compares him to a roaring lion. There's a big difference between the two. One sneaks up on you, one you can hear coming from a mile away. From a mile away. So what is Peter talking about when he talks about the lion that roars, seeking to prowl and pounce and pray? I think what he's talking about in the context of the book of 1 Peter, that's a book largely has to do with how do Christians deal with suffering and persecution and hostility. Listen, the devil as a roaring lion, when he opens his jaws to clench his prey, he oftentimes does so by leveraging the pain and the pressure and the suffering and the hardship and the persecution and the hostility and the heat and the temperature as it rises in your life. He opens his mouth and he roars and he roars. And in doing so, as he roars against us in those times of hardship, in those seasons of pain, as he roars against us, what is happening is he's, he, is he, he's roaring at us and he's saying one of three things, right? In, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, and you've been there, maybe some of you are there this morning and that's why God has brought you here. But whenever you're suffering, whenever you're hurting, whenever there is pain, the devil opens his mouth and he roars and some of you have fallen prey to one of these three lies and he will roar at you. God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that you're hurting. He's unconcerned with your pain. He is not loving. He is not good. And there are some of us who have encountered incredible hardship in our life. See, some of us, God, Satan has opened his jaws and he's begun to roar at us. If God was good and he cared about you, then your parents would still be married. If God was good and he cared about you, then your friends would not have abandoned you. If God was good and he actually cared about you, then you would have gotten the promotion, adults, that you wanted to get. If God was good and he actually cared about you, then things would work out the way that you hope that they would and think that they should. Some of us, God has, uh, Satan has opened his mouth and he's roared against us in our times of suffering. God is not good. For others of us, others of us, God, Satan has opened his mouth and he's roared. God is not powerful. He's not able. In other words, he can't do anything about your situation. He's an impotent God who's kind of spun everything into existence and he stepped back and he's just kind of watching everything as it unfolds, but he does not intervene. There's no reason that you should pray to him. There's no reason that you should seek him. There's no reason that you should open your Bible and read because God is not involved. He's not powerful enough to do anything. He's impotent. And some of us have believed that lie. And so we've drawn away from God in prayer as opposed to pushing towards him in prayer. And then for others of us, perhaps even there's a chain or a sequence of these lies that Satan roars at us in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our afflictions and pains, the deep hurts of our hearts. 
If God, God is not, either God is not good or God is not powerful or God is not there. He doesn't exist. He's not real. If he were real, then you wouldn't feel so abandoned. If he was real, then you wouldn't feel so lonely. If he was real and he really cared and he was really powerful, then you wouldn't be experiencing the kind of hardship and pain and persecution and hostility that you feel right now. Listen, whenever my wife and I um, had our, uh, delivered, well, I didn't deliver anything. She delivered our second child. Um, and we're sitting in the hospital room. And as, as, as we, she, she goes, Sarah went down to the nursery that, that night and um, we, we stayed in the room to get a little bit of a rest. Um, and the next morning we wake up to a pediatrician, hospitalist pediatrician sitting in our room telling us that they think that our daughter has a condition that's going to require surge, multiple surgeries. At, and, and she did at three months and at 18 months of age um, and on major cranial surgeries and then uh, now three eye surgeries and an impending fourth. Uh, and so as we're sitting there in that hospital room, Look, just to be, just flat out transparency with you, as my heart began to hurt, all those things began to run through my mind. God, where are you? You ever ask that? God, where are you? Why me? Why her? If you were really good, and if you were really powerful, if you were really there, why? And I can remember on, on, on multiple occasions as I opened the Bible to read, as I got on my knees to pray, I remember just thinking, God, I've, I've sacrificed much. I've sacrificed what might be you know, high-paying jobs in order to serve your church. I've sacrificed countless dollars in order to pursue education to serve your church. I've given up eight years of my life to pursuing education and serving people and loving people. God, you owe me. You ever been there? I have. Because whenever suffering hits and hurt happens, Satan opens his mouth and he roars. He doesn't seek to sneak up on you. He seeks to overpower you. And so the question for us this morning is this. I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning digging into this. How is it we see Peter telling us to resist him? To resist him. But how do we resist him? Students, how do you go about resisting the advances of your adversary who wants to ambush you upon your returning from both the physical and the spiritual mountaintop of this last week? Adults, how do you resist the advances of the adversary in your life? Because he's seeking to prey upon you. He's seeking to prey upon you. He's seeking to devour you. And it's no mere like paintball match, okay? Right? It's not war games. There's live ammunition. There are real consequences. So how do we resist? Several things I want to, I, this, this may be the most practical thing I say to you this morning. And so I want you to hear this this morning. The first thing that you have to do, that you have to consider um, was one overarching thing, okay? And then I'm gonna get to several other practical things. One overarching thing is this. So you gotta be proactive rather than reactive. You have to be proactive rather than reactive. Now listen, when I say you have to be proactive, I don't mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to go around rebuking the devil. 
right? I rebuke you, Satan. Right? You don't have to go around praying against him and driving him out of your house and driving him out of your car and driving him out of your engine and driving him out of right, your, your coffee maker and driving him out of all these things, right? You don't go around rebuking him, praying against him and driving him out of everything. See, most of us, when we think of going on the offensive and being proactive, we tend to think that our encounter with the devil is a power encounter. But it's not. It's not. It's a truth encounter. It's a truth encounter. I want you to consider something. Even in the wilderness, whenever our Lord was tempted by Satan, he was tempted to circumvent God's purpose and plan for him. Right? In other words, Satan said, you can have everything that your father is going to give you, but there are alternate means and paths by which you can receive it. And on every occasion, in, in the three temptations that Jesus experiences in the wilderness, Jesus, yes, he responds with scripture, but, how does, but in doing so, he has a truth encounter with the devil. And so whenever the devil begins to roar in our lives through suffering and through pain and through hardship, seeking to devour our faith, that's what he's trying to devour. He's not just trying to devour your body. Because if you're a Christian in the room this morning, the last thing that Satan would want to do is he would want to devour your body and send you to be with God forever and enjoy his beauty and glory. He wants to devour your faith through hardship. He wants to devour your faith through suffering. And whenever he begins to roar in your life, it's a truth encounter. A truth encounter with him. And here's the first truth that you've got to remind yourself of. Is you got to remind yourself that you are not in the fight alone. That you are not in the fight alone. Look at what Peter says in verse 10. I'm sorry, in verse 9, he says that we are not in the fight by ourselves, but our brothers and our sisters, our brotherhood all across the world is in it with us. Listen, one of the things that you need to remember, both students and adults in this room this morning, is you need to remember that the light breeze that's blowing against you right now, the light breeze of suffering, the light breeze of hardship, the light breeze of persecution, the light breeze in 21st century America is minimal compared to the Category 5 hurricane that other Christians in other places and other times have been engulfed by. See, other Christians in other places, even today in the modern church and other times in the ancient church, have been engulfed by Category 5 hurricanes where we have light breezes that are blowing against us. See, there are other Christians in other places and times who've lost much more than face. See, some of you think that by, by being set apart, students, the shirt that you have on this morning, some of you think that by being set apart, you're going to lose face. With people, you're going to lose reputation with people. But listen, there are believers in other places and other times who have lost much more than their reputation for self-identifying with Jesus. They've lost much more than businesses. They've lost much more than the opportunity to bake a cake or take a picture. They've lost much more than political influence. They've lost much more. They've lost much more 
than a lawsuit against them. They've lost much more than strife and tension in their homes. They've lost their lives. They've lost their families. They've lost their parents. They've lost their children. They've lost their spouses. They've even lost their own lives. When you read church history, one of the things that you begin to see is those Category 5 hurricanes that have engulfed the church throughout her history as persecution has swept in from outside of her in order to try and destroy their faith. And Satan, in the midst of that, is opening his jaws and he's roaring as he's doing in your life. And when he does, listen, you have to remind yourself this fight, you're not in the fight alone. That there are brothers and sisters who throughout the church's history who've been fighting to resist the devil with you, some even to the point of shedding their own blood, being burned at the stake, being crucified, being fed to hungry animals. Not only do you have to remind yourself that, that you're not alone in the scope and course of human history, but you have to remind yourself that you're not alone because there are people in this room right now who are fighting that fight with you, who are resisting him firm in their faith. See, one of the things, let me just speak to you students here for a moment. One of the things that makes camp such a meaningful, memorable, and impactful experience is the fact that you do disengage from Everything that distracts you here and God has your attention and God has your priority and, God, and, and, and God's people that you're surrounded with in these family groups and you guys begin to open like by last night, like you're opening up, telling everything that's been going on in your life over the course of the last year and you're engaging in those conversations. People are coming around you and they're putting their hands on you and they're praying for you and they're loving on you and they're supporting you. But listen, some of you, after that experience, driving back home, maybe even on the way home, you got a text message from someone that was waiting for you. You don't have a phone on the bus, but was waiting for you when you turned it on. And all of a sudden, it was just this flood of pain in your life, the flood of drama in your life. And what your tendency and my tendency to do in those moments is to pull away from the people who have pressed into us. Our tendency in those moments is to pull away from those people who have loved us and supported us and prayed over us and with us for the last five days. Our tendency in those moments is to feel all alone. Like we're in this battle all by ourselves. But you know what? This morning they're seated next to you, brothers and sisters, who are fighting the fight firm in their faith and just as much as you need them they need you to remind them to remind them that they are not alone so here's what I want to challenge you to do don't wait another 360 days (laughs) to open your life bare to someone else don't wait another 360 days to press in Don't wait another 360 days pulling away, pulling away, pulling away, pulling away to get on the bus next year to go wherever it is that God's going to take us and show up. And then you wait four days for being there. And then finally the last night, it's like, Don't wait. Keep pushing in. Listen, some of you adults who were there at camp with our students this week, I want to challenge you. If you made a connection with a student this week, pursue that. Pursue that. Don't let that linger. 
Students, if you made a connection with an adult or with another student this week, pursue that. Go to those adults and say, I need someone to disciple me. I need someone to mentor me. I need someone to encourage me. I'm hurting right now. I came home to a mess in my family. And it hurts. And I need someone to encourage me and disciple me and mentor me and challenge me. You're not in this alone. That's the first thing you've got to be proactive about, reminding yourself that you're not in this fight by yourself. Second thing is this. Peter says, not only do you have to remind yourself that you are not alone, but you have to put on humility. This might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but I want you to follow me here for a moment, okay? You have to put on humility. Humility is like spiritual Kevlar, okay? While pride is like spiritual cancer. Humility is like spiritual Kevlar because it absorbs the shots of the enemy and disperses them as opposed to letting them penetrate and do damage. See, humility is like spiritual Kevlar. Pride is like spiritual cancer. And in this text, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Put it on. Tie it around. That's literally what he says. Put on humility. He says, humble yourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. And he says, the reason you're to put on humility, the reason you're to humble yourself before God is because God, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter goes and grabs a proverb from Proverbs chapter three and he sucks it into chapter five here. And he says, listen, the reason that humility is important in your life and it is vital for resisting the advances of the adversary is because when you elevate and exalt yourself in the same way that Satan did before he fell, you elevate yourself and you exalt yourself above and against God and God stands in opposition to you. He stands in opposition to the proud. And there are at least two forms of pride. There is irreligious pride. In other words, they're saying, God, I'm gonna own and control my own life by breaking all the rules. But then there's also religious pride that says, God, I'm gonna own and control my life by keeping all the rules. But I want you to hear something this morning that God stands in opposition to both. To both. When you say, God, I'm going to control my life by breaking all the rules, doing whatever I want. When you say, God, I'm going to own my life and control my life by keeping all the rules. Both and God says, I stand in opposition to you because in that you're trying to exalt yourself above and against me. Which is the exact thing, the exact sin that caused Satan to fall along with a host of the heavenly angels to become the demons. Satan sought to exalt himself above and against God. I don't think it's any coincidence that in his conversation about resisting the devil, Peter says, humility, humility, twice, twice. You have to put on humility. You have to put it on. In other words, you don't just wait around hoping, going, man, one day, I really hope to be humble one day. I'm just, I, I'm just gonna wait till God makes me humble. No, he says it's an active involvement on your part that you put it on. And one of the ways that you put it on, students and adults, listen, one of the ways that you put on humility is by filling your mind with thoughts of the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God. How mighty and majestic, glorious and beautiful he is. 
You know, one of the things that I enjoy most about being in the mountains this last week and every time that I go, right, as you, as you, as you traverse some of the hillsides and as you hike up to some of the smaller peaks and you get that perspective, that vantage point of all the other taller peaks around you. Thursday afternoon, we stood at about 9,200 feet, give or take 50 feet. Um, we, we, we stood about 9,200 feet and we looked all around us, 360 degrees, and you can see towering peaks all around you. You can see peaks that rose to 10, 12, 13,000 feet above sea level. And one of the things about being in that kind of environment, that kind of landscape, is that when you, at 5 foot 11, stand amongst all the peaks that are 13,000 feet above sea level, it makes you feel a little bit small. A little bit small. And for me, it gives me a sense on my heart of the bigness of God. That God is huge. He is massive. That in this landscape of all these peaks that surround you and you feel so small and imagining that in God's eyes those mountains are minuscule to him. There is this sense of how small I am in comparison to how big God is. How ignorant I am in comparison to how wise God is. How broken I am in comparison to how beautiful God is. There is a bigness of God. And if, listen, where, the, where, where God is big, humility flourishes in your life. But where God is small, where God is small for you, in other words, where you think that you know how life should turn out and you think you know how things should work and you think you know, where God is small, humility flounders. Where God is big, it flourishes, like the soil to grow. And so whenever you face hurt, whenever you face suffering and pain in your family, in your relationships, because of Jesus at times, when you face that pain, living set apart means, you know what, God? I don't know. Don't know why this is going on. I don't know why this is happening, but I know that you are in control and I know that you are good and I know that you are powerful and I know that you are there. I'm so small. You are so big. It's exactly how God responds to Job. You know the story of Job? Job's just kind of trucking along, living life, man, and all of a sudden, all of this pain, the skies open up and all this pain and hurt falls on his life. He loses everything that he owns. He loses his sons and daughters, all of his family, all of his livestock, all of his possessions. Loses everything, including his own health. And he's there covered in boils. And he's rolling around in the dirt. And as even his own wife looks at him and says, Job, why don't you just give it up, brother? Curse God and die. And then Job has his, his, yeah, his stupid friends who kind of gather around him. They're like, what did you do, man, to, to, to warrant this from God? And they keep asking question after question after question for 36 chapters. 37 chapters, I'm sorry. 37 chapters. And God is silent for 37 chapters. Why, God? 
And then in chapter 38, God opens his mouth and listen to what he says. Job 38, beginning in verse one. And this, this, by the way, this goes on for two chapters. I'm just gonna read you a small excerpt. This is what he says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you. You've been questioning me, Job? Let me ask you a few questions. And I'll make it known to you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. And said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall the proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning stars, or morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shake be shaken out of it? It is changed like the clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their flight is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. In other words, go ahead and tell me. And in that moment, as I read Job 38 and Job 39, there is a smallness about me and a bigness about God. So that in the midst of pain and suffering, to resist the roar of your adversary who wants to overpower you, like Habakkuk, when God raises up an enemy nation to come and overthrow his people in judgment, and Habakkuk goes, why are you going to choose those guys? Why are you going to use them? They're the most violent people on the face of the earth. And then in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, Habakkuk says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. In other words, students and adults, there are times in your life when you don't know. You don't know what God knows. And if you knew everything that God knew, then whatever it is that you were asking him for to take away from your life, or to add to your life, you would respond in the same way that he does if you knew everything that he knows. And so there are times in our lives when we're hurting, where we stand before God and we say, God is in his holy temple and I will praise him with one hand and cover my mouth with the other. Because I don't know. I will stand before him in adoration and I will zip my lips because I don't know. Because he is big, I'm small. Peter says, if you're going to resist the advances of the adversary, you will, you will never resist them if you're continually exalting yourself above and against God, thinking that you're wiser and that you're better and that you know more. But the only way you will resist his advances in your life is if you get down on your knees and say, God, you're big, I'm small, I don't know. Finally, I'm going to close with this. Really, I am. The next thing that Peter says in the text that I want to point out to you as we close is this, is that he says, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. But the way that you go about humbling yourself under God's hand, he says, is by casting all your anxieties on him. Listen, what is it that produces the worry in your life? What is it that produces the anxiety in your life that you feel? It's those pressure points, isn't it? It's the hurt and the pain that you feel. It's things not working out like you thought that they would. Right? That not being uncertain of your future. And Peter says whenever anxiety begins to rise in your heart, a part of humility, a part of humility is not to carry that anxiety yourself, but to cast it on another. See, you have one of two choices every time anxiety begins to rise in your heart over the pain and suffering that you feel. And if you try to carry it for yourself, then Satan's jaws open and he begins to roar at you. You have one of two choices. You can carry it or you can cast it. You can't do anything else with it. You can carry it or you can cast it. And carrying it is a symptom of pride while casting it is an expression of humility because you say, God, I don't know. I trust you. I trust you. That word cast shows up in one other place in the New Testament, that exact word, and it literally means this. It's in reference to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem prior to Palm Sunday, and they take a donkey and they throw a cloak on top of it for Jesus to sit upon. They cast it on top of him. What's a donkey? It's a beast of burden, isn't it? Something that would, would bear and carry the burdens of others whether it's a plow plow hook behind him or a person set on top of him, he's going to carry that burden. He's going to carry that weight. And listen, what this looks like practically in your life is this, is that whenever pressure begins to set in and pain, you begin to experience pain in your life and the jaws of the lion open to roar, you wake up in the morning, you wake up in the morning and you say this, you say to God, the anxiety that weighs me down over my future. Some of you right now are so anxious over your future. You have so much worry over what's gonna happen next year, what's gonna happen in the next five years. You wake up in the morning, you say, the anxiety that weighs me down over my future is too heavy for me to carry and bear. I'm casting it on you, God, and I need you to bear it as my beast of burden. I can't carry it myself. When you wake up in the morning, and the anxiety that weighs you down over the dysfunction in your home, the strain with your spouse, the rebellion of your children, the tension between your parents is too heavy for you to carry and bear. And you say, God, I cannot carry it myself. I'm casting it upon you. I'm casting it upon you. When you wake up in the morning and the anxiety that weighs you down over your failures in the past, the ways that you have cherished idols of approval, the way that you have cherished idols of comfort, the way that you have cherished idols of power, the way that you have cherished idols of control in your life, and you wake up in the morning going, I've failed so miserably, God. How could you ever receive me? I can't carry or bear that burden. And you wake up and you say, God, I can't carry it. I'm gonna cast it on you. I'm gonna believe that you are strong and that you are able. I am small. You are big. You come to the end of the day in humility and you say, I don't know everything that God knows. But if I did, if I did, I would respond exactly how he's responded to my petitions and requests. And I would say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you are carrying your anxieties this morning, you're playing right into the jaws of the lion. 
and he is roaring at you. God is not good. God does not care. God is not there. Would you cast them this week in humility upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you deeply. And he has shown it by allowing his son to be ripped to pieces in your place so that you might be whole. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, would you help us come to terms with your bigness and our smallness? Would you help us come to terms with the fact that you're good, that you're sovereign, that you're loving? Would you help us come to terms with the fact that we cannot carry our burdens, we cannot carry our anxieties, we cannot carry our worry, but we must cast them. I know there are students in this room this morning who have been carrying that for a very long time. Some of them even through these last five days and they've never spoken it to anyone or even been honest with you. Father, there are adults in the room this morning who have been carrying burdens for years. They've been carrying burdens over their past failures. They've been carrying burdens over their present circumstances. They've been carrying burdens over their future uncertainties. Father, I pray. I pray that you help them to see that's just a symptom of pride in their life. A symptom of the fact that they believe they don't need, really need you. God, this morning may we cast those things at your feet, trusting you with our past failures, trusting you with our present circumstances, trusting you with our future uncertainties, trusting you in the midst of our pain, that we put our hands over our mouths and raise one to the heavens in praise and honor of the God who is holy, seated upon his throne in the temple, and say, I don't know, but you do. Father, I pray that the students and adults in this room would know that they are not alone. but there are brothers and sisters who are walking this journey of faith with them. So may they stand firm. And Father, even whenever we, we are tempted to let go of your hand, God, may, by your grace, you continue to hold on to ours. We pray it in Jesus' name.